Welcome to Pontifex, the papal history podcast ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. I'm Bree, and today we aren't ranking anything, and instead we have a very special guest and a very special bonus episode to discuss women and female power in the Vatican. So it is my pleasure to introduce James Bolton of the Other Half podcast. Hello, James. Hi, wow, it's fun to see this from the other side. I've been hearing, <laughs> I hear that interest so many times, and I get to see uh, Bree do this in person. It's great. Hi. So, yes, as Bree <laughs> said, my name's James. I do the Other Half podcast. Um, some people might know me from a previous show that I did called the Queens of England podcast, uh, which I did for a few years. Uh, and Bree was very kind enough to be on my podcast a few months ago because I am currently doing a series on women in the Vatican, which I will be talking a bit about today. A uh, bit of background about my show. So it's uh, a biographical journey of women through history. So each season, I sort of divide it into sub-seasons. I take a particular topic, so Roman empresses, folk heroines, and obviously women in the Vatican, and do a few episodes or so on 10 women. Um, I kind of think that history podcasts can be sort of split into different categories. So you've got the kind of ones that bounce around a lot and do various things, whatever takes their fancy. So noble blood, rest is history. You've got your chronological deep dives, history of Rome, obviously. Of course, <laughs> you have the Rexy podcasts, of which uh, yeah. Brie is part of. Um, but I like sort of being able to bounce around, but also stick within a theme. Uh, I don't know many other people that do it the way I do, but it seems to work for me. And it's a fantastic show. So uh, you, you did just mention your themes there. So I'm going to ask you one question before we talk about women in the Vatican, which is, of the women that you have covered so far, who's your favorite? In the whole podcast? Yeah. Um, favorite is a strong word because I think she's actually a fairly low quality person. Um, <laughs> but, um, they could still be your historical favorites. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to slightly cheat and say two. My second season, uh, I did a series called uh, The Grand... Um, what was it called? It was about the daughters and granddaughters of Queen Victoria. Mm. And I find that really interesting. I'm really interested in World War I. I find that whole thing fascinating. And this, this whole concept is essentially the ruling families are populated by the children of Queen Victoria. She, her sort of tentacles ran everywhere. And two of her... <laughs> granddaughters ended up in Russia. One of them married the Tsar, one of them married, uh, that was Alexandra, another one married uh, a very powerful duke, and that was Ella. And they had two very different lives. Um, they didn't, sort of didn't get on. Alexandra, of course, got very involved in the running of Russia, extremely to that country's detriment. <laughs> and is in part responsible for the collapse of Tsarism and the rise of communism. But at the same time, what I love about her is, from a historical perspective, is that she's just one of these wrong person at the wrong time type people, because mm. she was a wonderful family woman, uh, you know, loved her husband, loved her kids. Um, if she had just been you know, in a normal time, if she'd she was supposed to just marry a you know a German prince in a sort of tiny Alpine duchy or county, and and no one would know her, and she would have been a very happy person. But and she didn't want to marry Nicholas. She knew it was a bad idea, mm. but they fell in love, and uh, it had really dire consequences. 
<laughs> but those are those moments in history that are so fascinating, right? Mm-hmm. They don't have to be wonderful people to be so interesting and worth talking about. Yeah, I think I I think there's the thing that I'm not going to criticize anyone who uh, has enjoys history as fandom. I think you know, however you want to, <laughs> however you want to enjoy it, um, is is up to you. You know, I've done some stuff with um, Heather Tesco, who does the Renaissance English History podcast, and the Tudor fans are really quite something. Yeah, but I think certainly as a podcaster and as a sort of trained historian, which I sort of am, um, you know, I did a master's degree. I'm not, I haven't got a PhD, but you have to really kind of divorce yourself from that. And I've always found these flawed characters a lot more interesting than the so-called perfect ones. Absolutely. And, and we're in exactly the right theme to be covering that because we have so many flawed, flawed popes that we're going to be discussing, and flawed women associated with them. So that gives me a perfect segue to ask my next question. Like you said, your current season is called Popesses, Female Power and the Papacy. So generally, when the world considers the church, they think of a sphere that's like heavily, if not exclusively, male-dominated. And not only that, but the entire structure of the church can certainly be called oppressive or even misogynistic. When I was talking to my husband about doing this collab with you, he thought it was really interesting that we'd be able to even pull out women to talk about in what is what he called the literal old boys club. So why did you choose the papacy as a topic to explore female power? Well, the short answer is I didn't. Um, So (laughs) uh, I let my my listeners choose my topic, which is probably the bravest and stupidest decision I make. But I did present it as an option for them to vote on, so that isn't really the right answer. (laughs) The genesis of the idea uh, was a book I read by someone called Linda Telford called Mm -hmm. Women of the Vatican, the name of which I shamelessly ripped off, which covers a lot of the same women that I ended up covering. I I generally, when I do these episodes, I find a book like this and nothing else is to find ideas for people to cover. It's not the most useful book for a podcaster. Uh, number one, she doesn't list her sources, which is the mm. cardinal sin, which makes some of her assertions a little difficult to prove. And she gets some of her dates a little mixed up, which is a little bit frustrating. But I think the, the two things that interest me most, so I'm sort of come from a sort of a medieval royal historian sort of background. I did my sort of master's on queenship in Anglo-Norman England. So I've always been really interested in how female power intersects with male power and more how male power uses women uh, in its sort of power structures and how it can differ over time. Mm -hmm. My wife is an art historian by training, so she knows a lot about the Renaissance and I know very little uh, about, certainly about the Italian Renaissance. So I Partly, this is all a really a big ruse for me to sound intelligent in art galleries. <laughs> but again, for me, it's mostly kings have wives in general. Kings have mm-hmm. wives. And why? And you know, they're queens. They're, if they're not kings, they're duchesses or whatever. And some kings don't use their wives for very much. Sometimes they're just you know, baby makers or alliance sealers. But a lot of queens had big roles. Generally, they were um, in charge of the court. Uh, They could sometimes be regents uh, if their husband died uh, and they had a minor. Or uh, a lot of the time, if the king was off fighting a war, she would be left in charge because she was kind of 
the most trustworthy person around. Mm -hmm. But popes don't have wives. Well, mostly yeah. they don't have wives. So where do women fit in this whole thing? They don't have wives. They, again, generally don't have daughters. So they're generally not you know, marrying them off. Again, they did, but in general, mm -hmm. they don't. So it was about this sort of very familiar structure to me, which is a medieval court, but this difference being a, a so-called celibate absolute ruler. Because Pope, I mean, a Pope is the leader of the Catholic Church, but he is also an absolute monarch. Mm -hmm. um, even today he is. Uh, and Absolutely. that was particularly the case in the Middle Ages, sort of post-Pope Gregory. And they needed to use the kind of mechanisms of royalty. And one of the mechanisms is women. Absolutely. And it, it is interesting to consider it as sort of that social structure where you have a court and you're missing a, a fundamental element of that court. And where, where those pieces are filled or, or left empty is, is an interesting exploration as well. But we're going to talk about the women who, who tried to fill those roles in, in many different ways. And so there's, there's two we're going to spend some time on today, and that is Pope Joan and Marozia. So we're going to get started with Pope Joan. And our listeners have heard a fair bit about Pope Joan. But just for reminder's sake, if they're coming to this episode for the first time, who is Pope Joan and what is the basis of her story? Ah, uh, Pope Joan. Well, <laughs> the problem with doing, and as Brie, you know, I think you did more episodes on her than I did. Um, <laughs> The yes. issue with her is it's very difficult to say this is definitively who she is because mm -hmm. it's a bit like King Arthur or Robin Hood. She will be in different times. Unlike these two, she's under different names. She could be from different places. So in some places she's English, in other places she's German, in other places she's Greek. But the general synopsis is she is a woman who managed to get herself elected Pope some point in the sort of early church. I mean, some people have her even in the sort of the higher middle ages. But we're mm -hmm. talking at probably at some point sort of 8th, 9th, 10th, maybe even 11th century. It depends on who you read. But what's, again, what's if you want to keep the comparison with Robin Hood and King Arthur, she was treated for a long time as a historical figure. She is mm -hmm. mentioned in the Pope, in the sort of Pope papal histories. She is very much seen as real for a very long time, really up until sort of the mid-Renaissance when people start to really question it. Shockingly, it's when Protestants start throwing, <laughs> throwing it at the Catholic. Yes, it is. Mm. But yeah, so uh, as it might, it might not surprise you, when they found out that she was a woman, didn't end too well for her. Uh, various different accounts of what happened to her, none of them are really very good. Some in mean, the most famous version has her giving birth in the street on her papal parade and her being stoned to death on the spot. But for me, the most interesting thing about Pope Joan, because I mean, some people have torn themselves in knots trying to find the historical Joan, and that's just an exercise mm -hmm. in futility. She didn't exist. I think absolutely, it would take a very brave person to make a make a sort of rational argument on that. So to me, what's more interesting is why the legend exists and also how it's been used because legends exist for a reason you know they don't just pop up mm -hmm. and they don't survive for a reason i mean there's all sorts of stories that have existed throughout time and you know we'll never know how many because most of them don't you know live on there are thousands and thousands of stories a very small amount are written down once 
and then an even vanishingly small percentage of that are written down enough for it to survive. <laughs> this one was written down a bunch in a lot of different places. In you got it in English sources, German, through hundreds and hundreds of years. And that I think is the most interesting thing about Joan. It is. It's so fascinating because there are something like 400 different source accounts of Pope Joan, whether they just be snippets or whether they be a full account like Jean de Mailly. But with all of that and with the understanding that we can clearly and, and sort of definitively say that she did not exist and exists purely as a mythological f- figure who was for a long time accepted as real what does that myth tell us about women in power in the church in the 9th century when she was said to exist or in the 13th century which is when she was primarily and predominantly written about i think if you're going to describe it with one word it's fear i think mm-hmm. there is a huge amount of and it still exists this day uh, inbuilt fear about female power because it challenges the existing social structure you know she pope pope joan kind of is a very subversive figure she comes to you know the the papacy through let's say some form of trickery you know she knew she was a woman she knew she wasn't supposed to be pope and you know you if you look at any sort of female powerful figure throughout history really you have people who are just really worried about what this means for them mm-hmm. and you know 8th 9th century is a very uh, sort of uh, scandalous time, let's say, for uh, for papal history. Uh, I'm sure your listeners are very much looking forward to the study of the pornocracy that you're about to get into. So close. Uh, yes. And that we'll be talking about a little bit more uh, with Marazia. So I think there it's uh, Joan sort of emerged in this background of scandal, of a, a church that's seen as being corrupt. Well, it was corrupt. Uh, that's seen as being seedy, well, it was seedy, that was seen as being just infested with a uh, with bad, you know, it's, it's a virus, it's, it's, it's fetid. And mm-hmm. Joan is this sort of ultimate expression of a system that is broken. You know, a, wom- a woman managed to get herself named Pope. You know, the, the, the so true shocking. scandal, absolutely shocking. You know, you have, you know, it's one thing for it to be an awful person, but a woman, good Lord. Well, and that's just it. She's very much a, she's a manifestation of those social anxieties, but also of the political anxieties. Mm-hmm. And, and it's become so iconic in that, that they can, they can shift the blame to a woman because at the time that they're writing about this fetid and corrupt papacy, even though there is a, a woman that this is a, fairly directed at, we are talking about very, very, very corrupt, self-indulgent, <laughs> generally evil popes. So by being able to shift all of that anxiety onto a figure of the opposite sex is is particularly useful at this time period. And you just don't have many examples of female power going well. You know, mm-hmm. it's just, you know, ancient history, there aren't many. You know, you've got, you got Cleopatra, Zenobia. Uh, as being some two very minor examples, and neither of them particularly thought of being great by the sort of the Roman sources. Mm-hmm. And so you don't even have, you know, positive role models. They're just, it's just, as I say, I, for me, it's all about fear. It's all about worry. And it's all about this idea that 
a woman in power is wrong. It's not mm-hmm. just inadvisable. It's wrong. It's something that needs to be fixed. It's sort of unthinkable in a way that I think it's really hard for a 21st century audience to think about because we have numerous examples of this, you know, of, of women in power. I mean, we've got lots of women in power now. My country is about to elect uh, a woman next week. But back then, absolutely unthinkable. Absolutely. And and even within the church structure, it was still something that was so concerning because we were getting these ambiguous women figures who may not be at the pinnacle of power, but even just carving out the smallest avenue for it, like the mystics who who had a level of moral authority that they spoke to God directly. This is this is very challenging and very scary. Or the Beguines who are not exclusively conclaved or or convented off and closed off from the public. They're allowed to be these religious figures of semi-social authority without being a wife, a mother, or a nun. So this is this is unthinkable to the general population, but it's also it's happening, and that's where the fear really becomes a pinnacle, and why a figure like Pope Joan comes to the forefront as a manifestation of these fears. Exactly, and I think if you look at the women, if you have sort of powerful women that are more accepted, that aren't thought of as being particularly evil, um, it's generally the ones that stay in their lane. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, that generally conform in general to the expectations of what a woman should be. Okay, a woman in power, that's a bit weird. But if they, you know, stay, you know, they marry a husband and that husband is the one that's doing most of the power. If she has children, if she gives a lot of money to the poor, if she does an awful lot of religious foundation, if she does these sorts of things, then that's less bad. Yeah. It's when a woman does something unthinkable like getting themselves like named pope that starts to you know act as a man. We'll see again with Marazia, but you see again and again criticisms of women in power acting in a manly fashion, which basically mm-hmm. means acting like a king or acting like anyone else would. But mm-hmm. you know, acting as a man it's seen as being male, but of course it just means exerting power. But yes. women weren't supposed to do that. And I think that's one thing that ties in quite directly to one point I want to make about Pope Joan, because I think this one of the most telling things about Pope Joan that often gets missed in the interpretation of who she is, because it's very easy to get wrapped up in the, the scandalously sneaking into the papacy or the inevitable sexual scandal of it all is this implicit acceptance that all the sources have about her being exceptionally educated and a magnificent scholar and teacher. We're told that she was in every way able to hold her own and impress the greatest religious minds of the day. So there tends to be this general thought or understanding about the Middle Ages that they believed women incapable of the intelligence required to be educated or to to have any sort of role. But the fact that this aspect of Joan's story, how brilliant she was, how educated she was, isn't part of the scandal. The fact that she 
appeared as a man to do these things is the scandal. But her education, her capacity for brilliance is not questioned. And so this ties into a lot of what you're saying as a woman who occupied the correct social stratifications, the correct role within expected society. These things are not questioned. She could be brilliant. She could be educated. These are not things that are unknown to the medieval period. It has so much more to do with that gender structure and the exertion of power. I would say, yeah, I would say, though, that if you look at most of the examinations of, of her education, a lot of them make an awful lot of a big deal about the man who taught her all that stuff. Yes. <laughs> the, the <tutor laughs> and they do, because, <laughs> but again, it becomes a sexual component that mm-hmm. they were lovers, that they ran off together as well, of lovers. Yes, because naturally, inevitably. Yeah, I mean, it, it strikes me whenever I, on so many of these things I study, you hear about how this woman was exceptionally well educated for her time. Mm-hmm. And I hear this enough that I'm starting to question whether that's just a bit of lazy historianship, that mm-hmm. maybe women generally were fairly well educated. I think it depends on the it de- on the depth. Okay, when, when I say women, I'm talking really largely about, you're talking about your top nobles, your mm-hmm. princesses, mm-hmm. your duchesses. But I think it, it, so many of them had either mothers or fathers uh, who really put a lot of store in education, and they get an awful lot of credit for this. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm starting to wonder, really, whether actually, in general, women were fairly well educated, noble women at least. But we just sort of assume, whether it's this sort of dark ages hangover, that yes. we just assume that well, no one was particularly well educated, and certainly women weren't. Well, and I think that's exactly what she proves in this, because they discuss her education. They discuss her being an excellent scholar, that she is able to teach exceptionally well, that she is impressing people who are educated of the period, that there has and that they're not shocked by that part of the story does indicate that there is a base level of education that women are receiving that in the popular imagination, we don't apply to the medieval period. Yeah, I mean, you're never going to get any disagreement with me on uh, a point of the medieval period being looked down <laughs> on because that I'm a, you know, I, I the podcast goes through all the history, but I'm, at heart, I'm a medievalist, and mm. like all medievalists, I'm slightly sensitive about how how uh, other historians look down on us. You've got it out for Baronius, <laughs> exactly. Yes, we're definitely, we just defined in our last recording the Seculum Obscurum and his <laughs> his lovely contribution to the popular imagination of the medieval period. So, But the one thing that is really, that we mentioned prior about Pope Joan is that part of what made this myth so popular in the time is that it was such a manifestation of what was happening in the papacy, particularly in the 9th and 10th century. And that very, very smoothly leads us into the next woman who Pope Joan may have been created to have been a public criticism of, and this is Marozia. So who is Marozia? Ah, uh, yeah. So I was, re- I was really looking forward to covering Marozia. So she is well and truly in the pornocracy. So it's this period of papal history that is seen as its most seedy, its most scandalous, its most sort of its darkest period in in its sort of long and dark and seedy history. <laughs> I cannot believe that no one has written a book about this. I know. Like, like I cannot believe there hasn't been a TV series about it. It's amazing. 
No one would believe it. I think that's the problem with it is they would do an amazing, accurate, as accurate as possible story about Marozia and people would go, absolutely not. That never happened. That's the problem. Even just this period. I mean, the Borgias are so tame compared to this period. Yes. So my favorite thing about it is our main source for this whole story is by a guy called Liepred of Cremona. And the book mm-hmm. is literally called Revenge. <laughs> or retribution, depending on your translation. So she was born in the sort of late ninth century uh, into a noble family. Her dad was a duke and head of a very powerful sort of Roman faction, one of those sort of Roman gang lords that kind of roamed around. Her mum, uh, Theodora, always love a powerful woman called Theodora, was a really sort of powerful, sort of seen as kind of the brains of the family. And she uh, she gets all the usual, like she's masculine, um, but mm-hmm. the the difference between this and, say, Pope Joan, although Pope Joan has been sexualized, this is a very much, much more sexual um, story than Joan. Um, I said Joan is a lot about fear. This is all about sex, really. Mm-hmm. So the, her mum and dad had a couple of, couple of daughters. One of them was Marazia. Theodora is, if you believe the stories, had sex with basically everyone. Mm-hmm. But what seems to be fairly well established is that she... She may have been sleeping with the Pope, Pope Sergius III, uh, a very mm-hmm. sort of nasty, ruthless man. I won't spoil too much about him because I'm sure you're looking forward to covering him. Absolutely. But he is definitely in the sort of Alexander VI type story of this sort of very Machiavellian, before Machiavelli sort of person. Anyway, he, uh, very naughty, had a mistress, Marazia. She was 15. And that was her sort of entry into sort of power politics. And it's impossible not to think that her mother had this incredible influence on her. She saw how her mother operated, and she operated in much the same way. Mm-hmm. She was mistress of the Pope. She did get married. She married a local count called Alberic, and she had a son around this time whose paternity is, let's say, uncertain. Uh, <laughs> it could be Alberic, could be the Pope. Don't know. Pornocracy, I mean, is mostly seen as this sort of very incredibly seedy sexual time, but also as a period of incredibly short-lived popes. Um, they, none of them seem to last for more than a couple of years. Sergius didn't last a huge amount of time. Then loads of short-term popes, uh, that her, and her mum is seen said to have really masterminded this whole thing, you know, getting the right person in. I think really it's a lot of sort of placeholder old guys until she can get the guy that she really wanted in, which was her lover. Yes. A guy called John, John the Tenth. Mm-hmm. All this time, Arutzia is sort of um, enjoying her life as a sort of local powerful countess. And uh, it was when she sort of enters her sort of late teens, twenties, she decides that she wants a bit more. And I think another truism of women in power, really throughout history, is that there's barely enough room for one. There's certainly not room for two. <laughs> and some of this might. Some of this might just be a lot of sort of gossip-mongering historians and and chroniclers, but really there's room for like one female power broker. And her mum was that, and Marazia wants to be that. So she uh, Marazia teamed up with her husband. He was the military muscle. She had all the social contacts. She's said to have used an awful lot of extramarital sex to build those social contacts. How much mm-hmm. of that you believe depends on how much you believe some really quite biased sources. She apparently got managed to get herself named as a senator of Rome, um, which is very, very unusual for a woman. Mm-hmm. Initial plans didn't work out so well, but she did eventually manage to overthrow her mum. 
she got married again. Um, her, her first husband died, and uh, she then took on this role as the power broker. She's the one that's kind of the, the great sort of chess player, moving things around, making popes, breaking popes. Literally. Mm, exactly. <laughs> but then, and this is again, comes a lot in, in certainly in the series I've been doing, she made a really bad husband decision. So, husband number three was a foreigner which is real bad, Mm -hmm. and managed through some shenanigans to be named King of Italy, which made Maurizio a queen. Incredibly briefly, she was a queen. Um, Mm. It was a... A couple hours? (laughs) In my notes, I've written for about five minutes, but it was a few hours. uh, Because during the wedding feast... Some sources say it was a little bit after, but most of them say during the wedding feast, her son overthrew her, and she was thrown in prison, and then she died either of old age or maybe she was murdered. But yeah, that's Maurizia. It's a real rip-roaring tale. And we're going to cover it in detail because the other piece that is so important about understanding Maurizia is that not only is she this incredible power broker, she, she succeeds her mother as a senatrix of Rome. This is incredibly important. This is our baseline secular power. But she also creates a papal dynasty of, of herself. So whether or not her first son was the the child of Pope Sergius or not, which we will discuss in so many, so many details when we get to that episode, he does become Pope. That is who she wants to be Pope, is her son. And then she will have two grandsons that are Pope, and two great-grandsons that are Pope, and one great-great-grandson who will be Pope. So this is a woman who entrenched herself not only in power, but by blood created a sort of inheritable papacy for quite a long period of time. So she leaves a legacy that even after her downfall survives her by so incredibly long. And that is something we do not see in the stretch of the papacy. No, and I think we were talking earlier about how it's really important to think of popes as monarchs Mm -hmm. Uh, because the idea of creating a dynasty is not that unusual. Mm -hmm. It's entirely something that is entirely familiar to someone living then, you know, Mm -hmm. kings, dukes, counts, they all want to create dynasties. We think of popes as being, you know, the head of the Catholic church, but that's not Certainly not their only job. And mm-hmm. I think throughout history, it's really seen as kind of like third or fourth on their list of things to do. <laughs> Especially in this time period. <laughs> and I think actually, in some ways, it's even th- thinking of them in terms of the medieval kings and queens is not that instructive. It's really a, what they're more similar to is kind of third century crisis Roman emperors, because mm-hmm. you have these dynasties, but they kind of bounce around a lot. So although yeah. Maurizio had you know, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren who are named popes, they weren't all in a row. No. You know, they, you had, you know, dynasty will be in power for a bit, then, you know, another family will take control of the papacy for a bit, then they'll come back. You know, it's, it's this sort of, you really have something almost as this crime family, syndicates that are ruling Rome. And Maurizio, for a while, for a little while, it wasn't for a huge amount of time, was the kingpin. Mm-hmm. She was La Donna. <laughs> yeah, she was the one in charge. But what's what makes her different, I think, from a lot of these people is the way that she used being a woman to her advantage. 
Yes. I think maybe when we self think of women in power, we're seen as the being a woman as being this disadvantage that you're mm-hmm. working within these male constructs, you know, this world that men have created. And if you want to exert power, you can do it in a few ways. You can try and act like a man. You can try and act like a woman in the way that they expect in the sort of traditional roles. Or you can sort of go for broke, which is what Marazia did, and said, well, okay, well, how can I use, if I, you know, if I'm someone who has next to no morals, then how can I use sex? How can I use my, let's say, feminine qualities to make myself a powerful person, but as a woman? Mm-hmm. And I think a man couldn't have done it the way that she did it. Oh, absolutely not. However, she was still following all the rules. And this is something you said in your episode on Marozia that I loved. You said she was living by the rules of her time, but doing it better than anyone else. And that's what makes her so particularly scandalous, because as you say, she took those qualities of her femaleness, of her womanhood, and she used them all to such a great advantage. But it was not something that a man could do. She was doing it better than all of them. Exactly. And it's a, it's a way of doing things that was very much of its time. Mm-hmm. You know, someone doing, you know, Marazzi would not have been successful in a church, say, 200, 300 years later. It would, mm-hmm. it would uh, well, maybe, I don't know. It's difficult to say. But <laughs> I would say that in this we talk about corruption, and corruption is seen as being obviously very bad. But certainly in the medieval medieval kingdoms and certainly the medieval church, corruption is seen as kind of part of the parcel of doing business. You know, corruption isn't even necessarily seen as being bad. It's really the extent of the corruption that makes it bad. You know, paying a person off, you know, doing a doing a little thing here and there is not all that bad. But this was an exceedingly corrupt time where it was all insider dealing. It was all relationships. It was all power and how, what you could do for other people and staying on top. Uh, mm-hmm. And she just exemplified a, a way of doing things that worked for her, for her and for that time. And, she, uh, and it, it, it went really well right up until the point where it didn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you live by the sword and you die by the sword. And, and oh boy, did she ever, because it, it, it is sort of, it is, again, the perfect story for a miniseries, for a movie, because it, it does feel so full circle in its telling. But she is, she is an incredible woman who used their expectations against them again and again, and they fell for it every mm. time. And she's so, I mean, I, so, I mean, it'll take you a while to get there, but I also did in part of my series a few episodes on Lucrezia Borgia. And Lucrezia <laughs> Borgia, I, I have this suspic- suspicion that really her, the view of her is very much just Marazia. Lucrezia yes. is, is not actually all that scandalous. She's, mm-hmm. not actually, she's not actually all that, really. She's a very interesting person, and she did very well for herself. But her historical reputation is really very far divorced from the person that she actually was. Yes. Whereas Marancia, I mean, it's difficult to say again because the sources are, are terrible. So you're forced to really read between the lines and decide really how much of the propaganda you see is true and how much you see is false. But she, it seems no doubt that she was this character of person that was in 
intent on securing power, on wielding it, on using her body, on using sex for her advantage, and of staying as the pinnacle of power in Rome. You know, someone who mm-hmm. was more powerful even than the Pope. And and it's interesting as well, because if we look at what Marozia represents about what's happening in terms of the power of the papacy or what's happening on the political sphere, this is a period of massive volatility. This is a a Rome and an Italy at its most weak and unstable. The the popes who are coming to the to power have no actual power. They have no piety. They have no prestige. They're not being respected by the political figures of the day. But the political figures of the day are just as much at risk because we have this this Italy that is inviting a king in and saying, you will be our king. And when they tire of that king, they invite another one in to come and topple him over. And this happens repeatedly through the period. So the fact that Marozia is there as a power broker. And even if you want to stretch back to Theodora, her mother and her father, although primarily her mother, having control of the papacy for a stretch of popes and being relatively stable for that period, that is so so not what is happening everywhere else. And so when we come back to this idea of her doing it better than everyone else, she is the only marker of mild stability in a period that is not stable in the slightest. Indeed. And the only way that you can, again, the only way that you can do it is by being hideously corrupt and you have to live by the <laughs> rules of the time. Absolutely. Uh, you know, a a hard and fast, whiter than white anti-corruption campaign, it wouldn't have lasted five minutes. <laughs> uh, no. You know, she made... You know, I'm I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and say that you know she was. I mean, I'm, I would never say that she was perfect, but you know, I'm not going to ascribe a kind of morality to her. Although I think I did earlier, which I sort of regret now. You know, morality is relative depending on the period you're in. Mm-hmm. But you know, she she did make mistakes. You know, she most notably with her final husband. Uh, I think there was definitely a, a bit of greed there in terms of wanting to be a queen, and mm. who wouldn't want to be a king or a queen, really? It's just so fascinating to see this, the archetype made real, you know, almost any, well, not all of them, but so many women in power throughout history are cast with this sexual brush Mm -hmm. of the harlot, of the femme fatale, of the temptress. Yet Marazia does seem to actually be that person. It's so <laughs> yeah. rare to actually find that person. Absolutely. That actually you know, made real that that myth, that archetype. To the extent that I sort of wonder, are they is are they all Marazia? Did it all start with her? Or is it all go maybe it goes all the way back to Jezebel and <laughs> Mary Magdalene? I don't know. And Mezzalina, you know, it just it, it she definitely does seem to be the one that actually... Leoprand of Cremona aside, because the only way to look at that man is that everything he's ever written is the one-star Yelp review of whatever he's talking about, whether it be the entire city of Constantinople or Theodora or Marozia. He, he just hates everything. But in order for him to have had the vitriol and the hatred for her that he did, there had to have been something really there. And she does seem to have been that person, but she loved being that person and and owned it in every single way that she possibly could. 
I mean, history is very rarely invented out like out of whole cloth. You know, there's yeah. usually something. And Leo Prada Kimono, I mean, I, I forget exactly when he wrote, but he was fairly contemporary to her. Mm-hmm. He was I, during the I reign remember. of Otto. So, you know, you, you do get people like Geoffrey of Monmouth, who's sort of one of the fathers of Arthurian legend, who's mm-hmm. writing about, you know, English history that goes back a thousand years before. So there's a lot of invention there. But particularly if you're, if, you know, if Leo Prada's writing right after you know, Maurizio's death, there'll be people around who will know if he's mm-hmm. writing absolute tosh. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, people aren't, aren't stupid. So there has to, you know, when it comes to any kind of propaganda or slam, there's usually an element of truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's usually twisted. It's usually an exaggeration. So it's generally not a bad thing whenever you read something that you know is very vitriolic. It's of dial, dial the vitriol back by about like 50 to 70% and see where you end up. And she'd still be this incredibly remarkable femme fatale figure. Mm-hmm. So Exactly. And, and, and uh, I, I've sort of talked a lot about the way that she used sex in this, in this, in my episode and in this discussion. And I think f- even now, that's seen as a bad thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's seen as shameful. It's seen as dirty, seedy. But it was really just a tool. You know, her sexuality, her looks, her charms were a tool in the same way that a man's strength, a man's height, man's booming voice was to him. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's, uh, it, it, sex shaming goes back a long way. Absolutely. But, I mean, she she is certainly the figure that makes this period so interesting to talk about. And she is one of the reasons that we at Pontifax have a podcast, because these are the stories we want to tell and talk about. And so this is just, as far as your series on women in the Vatican goes, this is just the sizzle, right? We haven't even scratched the surface. So before we wrap up, because we have already talked about you coming back periodically, and and it, we're going to insert the women in the periods in which they belong, who can we look forward to hearing you come back to talk about? So I, I think I've sort of divided my podcast up kind of into sort of a few discrete sections. So you've got these Joan and uh, Maurizio, sort of the early sort of, uh, you know, pre-millennium. You have then two, you've got Joanna of, Queen Joanna of Naples, Queen Joanna the First. If you put Joanna of Naples into Wikipedia, annoyingly a different Joanna of Naples shows up. So you have to be very <laughs> careful. It's Joanna the First. And then you also have Catherine of Siena, who's a saint. So you've got a queen and a saint. And they're around the 14th century. So that's around the time of the Black Death and the Western Schism. And, you know, Joanna is a very different story. It's one very much more of a sort of temporal power and the use of the Pope as this kind of regional figure. And then Catherine of Siena is a crazy hermit. <laughs> if I'm going to really just, uh, distill her into a few words. Then we have the Renaissance. So we had, uh, I did three episodes in the Renaissance. We talked already about Lucrezia Borgia. We also have Felice della Rovere and, and Caterina Sforza. So members of three very powerful families who, again, rose and fall with the kind of the chaos that was Renaissance Italy and all the war. Right now, I'm in the next bit, which is the 17th century. So we had someone called Olympia Maidalchini, who was a, a kind of different to Maurizio, very different uh, in terms of like, her use of sexual power, but again, similar in that she was this sort of female kingpin, queenpin, if you will, mm-hmm. of Rome in her time. And I'm currently in the middle of the one I was most looking forward to in this whole series, which is Queen Christina of Sweden. 
Amazing. Who is the reason why uh, the Vatican archives are incredibly replete with source material because she brought it all the way with her from Sweden. She was a Protestant ruler around the time of the Thirty Years' War who scandalously abdicated and (laughs) ran off to Rome and converted to become a Catholic. Amazing story. I'm having a lot of fun looking into her. So if that that tickled your fancy, uh, please do come over and listen to the show. Absolutely. And and she is, it's so interesting because again, this is a woman doing it and it's so scandalous, but I can't tell you how many kings we've had that have retired and become a monk in Rome in our series already. So the precedent by the point that Christina comes around is a thousand years old, but oh, scandalous. It is true, but that's, um, that kind of dies off. It does. Um, you don't get that many um, willing abdications when you get into sort of the high and late medieval and the Renaissance. I mean, the most famous is Emperor Charles V, mm-hmm. um, and he he goes off and retires. But abdicate. I mean, you get a lot of abdications, which is code for overthrown and murder, <laughs> depositions. Um, yeah, exactly. But you don't. Certainly, by this period, power is a lot more entrenched and a lot more secure. Mm-hmm. You know, I sometimes wonder in the period where you're covering why anyone would ever want to be a pope or why anyone would ever want to be a king. It's just a really quick way of getting yourself bumped off. Absolutely. <laughs> Things were, I mean, not that much more secure in the 17th century, but at least a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to finish your series with Pascalina Lehnert. Yes. So to peel back the curtain a bit, I often think of the job of the history podcaster as staying about one lesson ahead of the listener. <laughs> So I haven't looked into her in a great amount of detail, but she's a 20th century figure. And she was a nun that, again, was seen as a sort of power behind the throne uh, in Mm -hmm. the sort of early mid to early 20th century. So I would love to tell you about her, but I haven't found out about it yet. So I look forward to finding out and sharing it all with you. She is a very interesting person. You're going to have a lot of fun with that episode, especially because it's during the the papacy of Pius XII, which is heavily charged, particularly right now, because as of 2020, the secret archives on Pius XII have been opened. So you're going to have a lot of fun with all of that. Oh, good. Pope Pius, entirely uncontroversial figure. Ah, not at all. No, <laughs> no, no controversy there. Just, yeah, sweet, soft, gentle man. So thank you so much for being with us, James. We've already discussed, like I said, having you back, so we will definitely see you again. And I'd like to end with sort of one final question predicated on something that happened two days ago at time of recording. Just two days ago, several women were protesting at the Vatican during Pope Francis's two-day closed-door meeting with the new cardinals to discuss the future of the church, and they were arrested. This was a nonviolent protest of less than 10 women They were dressed in red, and they were carrying parasols that had messages about ordaining women, listening to women, and giving them greater participation in the church. And they were arrested. So this idea of women in the church, female power in the church, is still very much an ongoing battle. It was only in 2020 that Francis created a commission to consider women deacon, and only in 2021 that they were officially allowed to be lectors. So what do you make, after all of your research about female power in the Vatican, what do you make of the current situation and the role of women in the church? I mean, I would never 
Dane, to call myself an expert on this, I did not grow up a Catholic, um, and it's not an area of history that I am enormously familiar with beyond uh, the stuff that I have studied. What's interesting about Pope Francis is that he is a quote-unquote reformer, and there was a huge amount of excitement when he became Pope that some of the... uh, some some of you know the the papacy might be I know pulled into something closely resembling I don't know the 18th century maybe and so you know maybe we might see you know acceptance of homosexuality of maybe even good lord homosexual marriage maybe you might start seeing women in posts of power you know we I you know I grew up in Britain uh, in England we had you know we've had women priests for for a little while now we had uh we were women bishops and that was incredibly controversial and the church of england is seen as being quite a bit more liberal than the catholic church <laughs> i used to have quite a lot of faith in a, a slightly whiggish i would say form of history that we're on a kind of a journey forward of things you know gradually getting better in some parts of the world and in some uh, circles some faiths are at different stages, but eventually they'll get there. The last, let's say, post-2016 world, in, mm-hmm. in certainly in my country and in others, has maybe disabused me of that notion a little. And you know, Francis is seen as being more liberal, but you know, you were grading on a curve here. Yes. Mm-hmm. And who knows where the, the papacy will go after him? Who knows? Yes whether we'll have um, someone like him. Mm-hmm. I would be. I would say it's probably more likely we're going to get some sort of reaction because I think Pope Francis is in many ways a reaction to Pope Benedict. Yes. And so these things, at the moment, this world that we live in is very much bouncing between extremes. Yes. I think the church at a certain point has to reform to survive. Mm-hmm. But what direction it reforms is the real question. Does it try and reform into a broad church, a broad church church, where they try and be more accepting and bring people in more that way? Or do they try and distill it down? Mm -hmm. They try and focus in on the people that are still there. And in general, the people that are still there and the most pious, the most uh, engaged Catholics are probably of a more conservative bent mm. than the liberal ones. Uh, yeah. And certainly, you know, the general trend is away from organized religion. Eventually, and generally the people that leave are on the more sort of questioning reformist mindset. All that's left is that mm. hardcore. It's true. So in some ways, I mean, maybe this is a very uh, depressing view I'm not at all convinced things are going to get all that much better. Right. Um, I think Francis has, in general, done a good job in beginning a liberalizing journey for the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I guess, I mean, it's been, there, there have been other steps on the journey. I mean, we had Vatican II. They don't, don't you know, most of it isn't done in Latin anymore. <laughs> but, Still very controversial. <laughs> yes. <laughs> No one spoke about Vatican II ever again. Um, <laughs> so I think it's a crossroads moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, studying the way that I have, the church has gone through these different periods of powerful papacy, weak papacy, 
you know, a pope as a regional power broker, a pope as just a man in a man in a chair. Uh, and, you know, it doesn't start off from the man in the chair and end up with Power Broker. You, it waxes and wanes. You know, the, the high point of the papacy was a good, I don't know, 500 years ago. Um, at least, yes. <laughs> at least. But Pope Francis is still a major figure. He mm-hmm. is still someone who, if he stands up and condemns the war in Ukraine, people would notice. Mm-hmm. If he was to go and criticize a world leader, people are going to listen to him. They probably won't do an awful lot. It's not going to bring him down. Gone are the days when a pope can bring an emperor to a hilltop mountain uh, like they did in the medieval period, but popes still have power. And particularly someone like Francis, who is fairly well respected out, you know, inside the faith and outside of it. Yes. You know, he has the power to make things happen, but he also needs within the church to be able to bring people with him and to change the mindset. And that's why I t- you know, talk about a journey. Mm-hmm. And But the next Pope, who knows who it will be? He can't influence it, probably. I'm not saying he'll be dead. <laughs> I mean, some of that's happening. I mean, there's a lot yeah, exactly. of discussion and, about that right now. And the last Pope retired, there's talk of, of Francis retiring. And mm-hmm. so maybe he could influence it that way. Mm-hmm. So I'm hopeful, but uh, history, uh, particularly recent history, uh, yes. is tempering that hope somewhat. And that is absolutely true. So thank you so much for being with us today, James. Where can people find your podcast? So my podcast should be wherever you find podcasts. If you use Stitcher, um, I'm working on it, but everywhere else it should be fine. So it's called The Other Half Podcast. It's uh, sort of a circle, white and blue, because there's a couple of, there's one other Other Half Podcast that I only found out about after I'd chosen the name. Oh no. Exactly. Uh, I've done quite a few series. So obviously for your listeners, Women in the Vatican, uh, I'm on woman number nine of 10, so we're nearly done. My listeners are currently picking the next one, um, but we're likely to be moving away from Italy, which is sad for you guys, um, but I'm quite looking forward to a bit of a change. Absolutely. Well, on that note, we can say thank you for listening and goodbye. Bye. <laughs> Yeah.